You're listening to a Discourse ZA production. Hello and welcome back to The Small Prince. I'm Bronwyn Williams and today I've got with me Ronan Ayres, who's going to be talking about psychedelics and how and why they could and should be legalized, not just in South Africa, but across the world. But to start with, Ronan, please do introduce yourself the way you like to be introduced. Cool. Hello, Brian, and thanks for having me on your show. I am an entrepreneur. I've been involved in youth for the last 20 years, and my company is called Student Village, and we help to connect brands to youth and youth to brands. But for most of my life, I've been interested in the subject of consciousness, and my personal mission has always been to how do I help leaders and influencers around the world to elevate their consciousness um, to make better decisions and craft and create a better world. That's a great intro. But I suppose what people are actually going to tune in to listen to here is about that consciousness experience that you're talking about. And of course, what underlies that is a lot to do with what's going on in the world with our psychedelics. So perhaps you can tell us a bit about what psychedelics are and why you think that they are a part of your journey and your offering to the world and to leaders going forward. Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's, it's really interesting first to understand the what. And when we speak about psychedelics, most people say, like, what does it actually mean? So psyche comes from, from the Latin word mind. And psychedelic is an altered state of mind. And so when you have certain substances, which I'll talk about, they help almost create a hyper-connected or hyper-connectivity in your brain that really gives you an expanded um, sense of consciousness and experience of your own world, your beliefs. And it, it's a massive sensory experience that, that helps you join the dots on many things that you're not able to do in a normal waking state of consciousness. So when we talk about these substances, things like magic mushrooms or psilocybin, LSD, um, ayahuasca, which is a DMT experience, San Pedro, which is from a cactus or peyote is a, a similar one. Ketamine, which is actually an anesthetic, but has psychedelic properties. And MDMA, which is, um, is, is the pure form of ecstasy, to name a few. So the reason why I love them is, um, I, as I said, I've been an entrepreneur, entrepreneur for most of my life. Um, my therapist put me into that type A performance-driven person. And while I've been able to achieve somewhat um, a lot of things in my time, um, just if, if you had a scratch beneath the surface, there was a highly anxious um, individual. Some of it might, might have been familial and, and came from my lineage, but in order to achieve, I, I was driven by a huge sense of anxiety and other related stuff. And um, where I got interested in it is I, I first came across it quite a few years ago and you know, I'd come across the thought when, when someone says, well, should we do shrooms this weekend? And I had no idea what they were talking about. And um, it got me into some research and research got me um, further down the road into thinking this could be really interesting because, um, you know, the research suggests that for anxiety or depression, psilocybin or magic mushrooms can, can help almost 60% not to just alleviate, but to get rid of the symptoms. And so to cut a long story short, I found myself overseas in a friendly territory with an amazing woman. And I landed up having an experience for um, two days using multiple substances. And I, can, I, I could only coin that kind of that experience in one way. And that is I had 40 lifetimes of therapy in 40 hours. So what, what did it do for me was I came back, I was, my anxiety was at record low levels. Some key relationships of mine were just um, so much better. I was a much more in tune father, leader, uh, partner, and 
kind of start looking at the world differently. You can understand yourself better and the way you interact with the world is just so much richer and hopefully, um, you know, my decisions since then have also been a lot better, how I approach life and the world. But I'll, I'll stop there for that. So basically you're saying that you've had some significant personal benefits from using these substances. But then again, the substances that we are talking about today are, do you have a bit of a patchy legal history, shall we say? So what is a bit of that story? So what happened with them? Because you're talking about things like mushrooms and cacti, which are very much natural substances. At what point did they go from being just part of nature and part of what we used or chose not to use as human beings into something that was regulated and turned into a naughty substance that we weren't allowed to use as societies. So what happened there? What went wrong in that regard? So, so it's such a great question. And I think to answer this question, the best way to do it is in three waves. So this is the, they call it the three waves of psychedelics. So the first wave, um, was for thousands of years in all our ancient traditions and uh, communities, whether it's, whether it's in the Americas or in the East or in Europe. For many years, there were many rituals that involved the use of plant medicines or psychedelics that, that were rites of passage for um, anyone going into adulthood, people getting married or just later in life, or uh, people with, with mental challenges and issues were going through these kind of ceremonies. So in many ways, it, it, it's existed for thousands and thousands of years and kind of in, in the early 20th century started finding its way into the West. So this was not something created by the West. This was something that was discovered by the West. And so what you saw in the 50s and 60s was this huge amount of research. We're talking much more than has happened today, a huge amount of research. First, you had um, a chemist, I'm not even sure if that's the right terminology, um, Albert Hoffman and his famous bicycle ride when he discovered LSD. And LSD was, I think there were about 40,000 patients that, that were put on LSD um, and studied for around um, mental health challenges and treatment. And so in the 50s and 60s, you had uh, the, the introduction of um, psilocybin, so magic mushrooms, LSD, and, and a few other things, MDMA, um, to help and to help specific things. And the, these are the things that, that are important to note. What does it help? Uh, treatment resistant de depression, addiction, uh, PTSD, so trauma, um, and all the um, anxiety, depression, or all the tough stuff that, that um, are prevalent in society today. Then what happened was, um, so now we're in wave two. So when it gets to the West, we're in the second wave. And so it starts sneaking out of the lab and into society. And that's when we hear about the 60s and all the cool things that, that we missed out on. Um, but, but it created a whole kind of subculture where, where, where it led to recreational um, abuse. And that was a time around the Vietnam War. And if you remember the Harvard professor, Timothy Leary, and he was all about, um, what, what did you say? Turn on, tune in, drop out. That was his thing. And, and really created a youth rebellion and political dissent. And so the US policymakers um, saw this as a major threat. You know, if people are, are tuning in and they're realizing a lot of the stuff that they've been fed is actually nonsense, then that threatens the status quo. And so Nixon decided to nix it. And so towards the end of the 60s and the early 70s, all the good work that was done in the labs and, and and by the by the way, it's not a it's not a conspiracy theory. The CIA were looking at using LSD as almost like a truth serum for you know for to deal with um, people at war, and um, it was you, you basically lost years and years of research that was happening um, in the fifties and sixties. It becomes illegal, and so they call them Schedule One um, drugs. And all of these substances with such therapeutic powers 
and the whole momentum of research basically gets brought to a grinding halt. And so only about 25 years later did it start coming back into the research labs. And so MDMA lasted a bit longer in a therapeutic sense, um, but only in the late or the mid to late 90s did it start coming back online in terms of research. And the FDA, which is the main body in, in the US, has granted MDMA, so the pure form of ecstasy, and psilocybin, the ingredient from magic mushrooms, a breakthrough therapy. So now, if you look back and you see, okay, so what's happened in psychiatry over the last 30 years, we've had the SSRIs and antidepressants and anti-anxiety drugs. Um, all of those, there's been almost no improvement over the last um, 30 years. And here we've got over the last, say, 25 to 30 years, we're back in the labs, we've got breakthrough therapy um, status with psilocybin and MDMA. Um, and LSD has got plenty of research behind it. And now we're at the final stage. So they're in stage three of three um, towards legalization. And so where we see um, the third wave is, so the first one was ritual. The second became um, research therapy, then recreational abuse. The third wave is all about learning, taking the best of the first one, and trying to avoid the pitfalls of the second one and to create a much more um, sustainable wave that will um, be all about the healing benefits um, in a, a much more responsible way. Okay, that was a great history to catch everyone up as to what's been happening here on a macro picture. But perhaps you can unpack a little bit about where we are with that legalization journey, not just where we are geographically speaking, because obviously some nation states are more amenable to deregulating these sorts of things than other ones, but also what you really mean by deregulation. Because deregulation for use in labs or to, to turn it into a sort of scheduled medicine that can be prescribed to people through a registered health practitioner is very, very different from making it legal so that people are able to use it for its original ritual-based purposes that you were talking about previously. So that maybe you can unpack that a bit as to where we are currently with deregulation from the global perspective and also who it's being deregulated for and what uses are likely to become legalized within the next few years. So I mentioned a few countries that, that it's legal. So we, we've covered that part. And, and just as a reminder, if you've just tuned in now, if you're looking to go find a place to, to legally do any psychedelic healing, it's, um, there's places in Brazil um, and other parts, Peru, other parts in South America, Mexico, Costa Rica, a few cities and states in the US that I'd like to talk about and in some areas in Canada, Netherlands and Portugal. So um, those are to name a few countries that are already far down the road. And some things are legal in South Africa, and we'll come back to that. So um, when you look at the states, it was very interesting in, when you saw the, the recent election that in certain states, um, like Oregon, even in Washington, in DC of all places, part, part of the election, there were these sub sub-victories or sub-battles and victories that, that um, popped out. And that was really around the decriminalization for use of uh, psilocybin and uh, other substances for the use of therapy. So recently, they're even talking in California beyond that, and that's to decriminalize so that not only can you use it in a therapy and medical sense, but the sense of uh, if you get stopped by a cop, that you won't get arrested. And that's like, like it's a hands-off kind of thing, like hands-off. And not only that, they, they want to look even to see who's been incarcerated and see, well, um, who's, who should we release out of prison because we arrested them just for possession. And so what you have is the two different routes of decriminalization, which is that approach, and, and then legalization, which is often done through structures. And this is how it's probably going to unfold in the third wave, that part one of the third wave will all be about going the medical route. So that which is very interesting because maybe I'll hold back my personal opinion before we 
but let me explain what, what's going to be yeah, happening. Don't. Tell us your personal opinion. <laughs> so, so if you had two choices, right? If you, if, you had, if you had a choice where you're wanting to do the deep work on yourself, you're, you're a person who is not under the supervision of a psychiatrist or therapist at the moment, and you decide you really want to go do your deep inner work and um, there are many choices and there's a big, whether you go into a legal territory or you tune into the underground where it's happening and um, you decide you want to go to a really experienced, well-trained healer and join a healing circle, either to go individually or in a circle and go attend in your town or in a, in a neighboring town to go do a ceremony. That's what they call it. When you, when you go have plant medicine or psychedelics, you go have a ceremony. There's that option, or it's making an appointment with your local psychiatrist to go to a hospital or to their rooms to go have an administered session in their rooms under their supervision. If you had to ask me, um, I would hate to go to a hospital as a, and maybe because maybe I'm a, uh, I, I could loosely be put into a healthy normal category that, you know, my, my choice would I want to go to the Morningside Clinic to go have magic mushrooms or, or um, to have a ketamine drip or to have that? Not my choice. But that's where the world is going to go. And if you, if you go down the legalized route, there's a, there's a whole issue of structure. So it's seen as, okay, we're being responsible, but responsible also comes with its own efficiencies. So the inefficiencies around, like if you look in, in South Africa, there's, been, there's, there's no cannabis medicine that's available. So it's been legalized for, um, for private use because they won the court case um, because it's, it's a constitutional right around privacy. But um, the governing body, SAPRA, in order to produce a medicine, you've got to spend tens of millions of rands on research. Then it takes at least five years in terms of application to bring it to market. And then you've got to get it into the market. So there's, there's, there's so much red tape just locally. So if, if it's either over-regulated or inefficient, people just go back to the black market. So, so if it's done properly and it's, and it's done by people who... Um, or in collaboration with people that really understand this market, you could create laws that will not only be efficient, um, that would include medical and non-medical practices, and the governments can actually earn more tax. Yeah, exactly. That's, that a, that's quite an interesting point that you bring up there, because you're talking there really about sort of deregulation for sort of personal rights and then also for business rights. So obviously you've got to follow the money on these things. And it's interesting that you made the case around what happened with the deregulation of cannabis in South Africa, where the courts really went at it, as you said, from the personal rights perspective first, from that sort of whole privacy perspective. It yeah. seems that the opposite is sort of happening now with the psychedelics industry, that the deregulation is being pushed by industry, in which there are very large financial interests behind these sorts of things. And that brings up the questions as to what's happened historically, particularly in South Africa, because I used to work for a pharmaceutical company and or, or a nutraceutical company. So I understand and the issues that we had when we started to actually start regulating plant-based medicines, things like St. John's wort, for example, things that were available for anyone to use, then actually become regulated, they become legalized, but at the same time, they also become scarce, they become commodified, and they become the domain of only being allowed to be sold by people that operate in a pharmaceutical or in a medical environment. So it's almost a perverse deregulation that actually makes it harder for people to get their hands onto these products that they might be wanting to use for either spiritual reasons or for health reasons. Do you have a comment on that and the direction that the, the deregulation and legalization is tending in South Africa in particular? Are we going to go into that same track that happened with the nutraceuticals and the plant-based medicines sort of cycle? Or are we looking at going the same sort of routes, and if not, why not, the way that cannabis has been legalized for personal use. Do you have a comment on that? Yeah, so I, I want to go back to the, to the legislation and the history just quickly. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm no lawyer, but I have such a great lawyer friend who's been involved in the whole fight against cannabis and is involved in the fight uh, to legalize um, mushrooms in South Africa. And he had a, he's got such a beautiful term. And the fight is really around the right to self-elevate. So I have the personal agency to choose, you know, it's Friday today, tomorrow in, in my own home under safe conditions, do I have the right to choose to, to raise my own levels of consciousness and, and will I bring harm to others? And so that's, that's an interesting question and that's probably what's going to be going to the constitutional court at some stage. And so the, part of the reason why we have these antiquated laws in our country and all these substances are banned was because our country, it's actually our old government, followed the Nixon government. And so whenever it's been challenged in the courts, there's absolutely no incentive for them to look at it because it's easy for them just to point it. These are banned substances and apparently cause not only harm to the users, but harm to others. And so when you actually look at the studies, the irony out of all of this is that when you look at the scale, what, what does actually cause harm to self and harm to others the most is alcohol. And then just a bit down the line is tobacco. And right at the end of the continuum, which is almost negligible, is mushrooms, MDMA, and, and all the things we we're talking about. And, and funny if they help cure the issues of the ones that are legal. So that's, that's just on the one side. I, I think when you're talking about big pharma and you've worked in it, um, there's issues around also something that is natural that you can't patent. And so, for a pharmaceutical company to patent something that's unpatentable, if that's the word, is it's this this is a this is potentially a big threat because here we've got a, a, this whole natural industry coming that they can't really participate in if they want a monopoly. So it's um, so what you're seeing is new pharma, what I call it, coming out, and that's I will give you an example. Overseas, there's a company called Compass Pathways, and what they're doing is they're synthetically producing uh, the molecule psilocybin from magic mushrooms, and which has some some good use too, because whether it's in research or with or in therapy, you want to know you're getting a consistent dose. Um, but then the question is, do you want natural or do you want synthetic? And so, I don't know. Uh, I've never had synthetic, but naturally, I'm a more the organic kind of dude. And I think what you're seeing around the world, if you really want to know where things are going, is to understand where the world of therapy is going. So you're seeing this whole boom in stocks. Um, first, investment. There's probably about half a billion dollars that have been invested in the last few years in the shroom boom. And you're seeing so many companies listing, specifically in Canada. And it's all about clinics. So there's a land grab for clinics because what's going to happen in the future. So right now, ketamine is available. Remember, ketamine is an anesthetic that provides psychedelic properties. And by the way, for people that, are, that experience suicidal thoughts, it makes it go away immediately. So like, there is no other um, substance that can help in that way. And, and so you have about 2,000 clinics in the US that are offering ketamine. Now, the interesting thing there is you have um, there's not enough psychiatrists that are trained in this. So you, you have quality control issues, not in the substance. And by the way, um, um, big pharma are producing ketamine. So they're very, they're very involved in that. But now you've got your anesthetist that's in some clinics that are issuing you with the ketamine. So now back to my, origi my original answer, if I want to go do this work, do I want to go to a local anesthetist or do I want to go to so a spiritual shaman that knows what they're doing and knowing that these substances are way bigger than the medical world and the DSM four or five or whatever chapter they're on. And um, so you, you, you're seeing the developments going back to clinics and what's going to happen is starts with ketamine, which is available now. MDMA will be online within two years. And MDMA is known to not only alleviate trauma, but to cure trauma. And we can talk about how it does that and everything, but think about it. 
all the soldiers returning from war, um, the trauma from COVID, the trauma from um, sexual abuse, any racial abuse, any kind of abuse, these, these molecules and substances help to cure and not alleviate. So if you think about the mental health problem in, in the US alone, it being about $255 billion a year, there's a massive saving if you can bring this online. And, and it's not just about the substance, it's about the therapy that goes with it. And so many people say that, yeah, we'll just take the substance and I'll be better, but it's actually integrating what comes up. So if you go back to the clinics, there's a land grab for the clinics, ketamine's online now, MDMA in two years time, hopefully probably in three years time, uh, psilocybin, and then, and then, and then, and then. So when you're going for therapy in the future, and, and just to speak about my, uh, my own stories, you know, I've, I've had a few seasons of therapy in my time and, and I found it hugely beneficial. But when I did work with psychedelics, it felt when I compared the two, it was like the difference between scuba diving and, and snorkeling and snorkeling being therapy and scuba diving and, and, <laughs> and in the depths was, was psychedelics. And so the two together, I think, work brilliantly. And then you add the other aspect of technology. So if you think about um, what happens between the sessions, so there's, a whole, there's this whole new range of wearables that whoever is administering for you, whether it's your therapist or your psychiatrist, will now be able to monitor your health in between sessions. So when, they, when you arrive and you sit on the couch and they say, how are you feeling? And you think, I think I'm okay. They can actually bring out your whole report of actually, you know, your heart rate variability or your, and all your stats, your, 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 your physiology. And, and then and with surveys in between, how you're feeling, how you're doing on every day, they can actually have a much more informed picture of how you're doing and how you're doing to the rest of the population that are also doing this kind of work. That's a great point to sort of start segue into the next sort of question that I have for you, which is perhaps just to be fair, we can try and, as I say, sort of steel man the, the converse argument, the argument that these things, because they are so powerful, and if they do need your therapist to actually track how you're doing when you're having one of these experiences, what well, are they good arguments for why these substances should not be legalized or if they are legalized should be regulated in some ways do you think there's a justification there and after we've unpacked that maybe you can just once again give your personal perspective because obviously when it comes to regulating anything there's pros and cons there's there's harm along with the, the good intent that comes with the regulation maybe we should just unpack that a bit as to what are there any real reasons or good arguments for why these things should remain either made illegal or at least regulated so that only professionals can administer or to monitor the administration of these things. Yeah, so I think if you look at uh, the second wave and you look at the 60s, I wasn't there and I have a bit of FOMO and it looked really fun, but things got out of hand. And, and I think there's a real case for, for having structure and, and levels of control and but not to over control because that actually sends people back to the to the black and gray markets so uh, i'm all for deregulation uh, i see way more pros than cons you know, it's interesting when you have discussions with people that there's there's 30 years of stigma so if mm. you think about um the first when you speak to someone about psychedelics that has been kind of schooled for the last 30 years, their first answer is, but they're drugs. Drugs, bad, yeah. <laughs> drugs, bad. And from school, they've been telling me how bad they are. And only the rebels and the misfits are the ones that, um, that were using them. And so my question is, the simple one to a lot of these people, you know, do you use an iPhone? And, and they know, yes. So that was conceptualized on LSD. So... It's not, it's not just about fixing mental health challenges. It's, it's also about the most powerful leaders in the world, which I believe um, if they're mentally fit to, to try it, then um, you know, they can tap into their deeper consciousness and really come up with new ideas, new business models, new ways of running this planet, which could reverse the, the, the kind of place that we're, that we're in right now. What are the pitfalls? 
Well, I think abuse, and if you look at it now, I mean, there was, my lawyer friend gave me an interesting uh, perspective. He said, like, like, if you look at addicts at the moment, they, many of them are, are too scared to seek treatment because they think they're going to be arrested because it's illegal for what they're doing. If, it's, if it is legalized, then there can be huge um, education programs, it can be support programs for those that um, shouldn't be doing it alone, that are doing it alone. My belief um, in this space, personal belief, is it should always be facilitated. This, like, don't try it at home, I think for this is, is, is really relevant. I think only a fraction of people are, are kind of geared enough to hold it and, and do it alone. And I'm all for the responsible and safe use. And it's kind of, it makes sense that the, the, first, the first step in the third wave of, of deregulating should go through the medical route. But I'm hoping that, that part two opens up this whole responsible use through ritual usage, because there are so many good people out there that can, what they call, hold the space and help you integrate it. And so that's, that's, that's the big problem is often that people go and they either find the substance on their own or they go join a ceremony or um, potentially even get it from a, from a psychiatrist and they go and have the experience and that they go into this expanded sense of consciousness and, and it could bring up trauma and it could bring up difficult stuff and they don't know how to integrate it and come back um, into the real world and it can be a disturbing experience. So you need qualified people to help people land the rocket. Um, which brings me up to something that, that we, we haven't spoken about and, and what I've realized over the last few years is that I think there is a gateway drug. And this gateway drug is legal and hasn't got much, excuse the pun, airtime, and that's breathwork. And, yeah. and if you think about it, like in a world of filled with inequality, a world that's, you know, uh, under or over-regulated ego control and all of the kind of issues we can speak about at a, at a higher level. What we all have, which we don't use enough of, is our own breath. And, and I've worked with many, many people, um, again, under facilitated conditions, um, working with their breath, so intense breathwork sessions of between, say, 40 minutes to over an hour, where you can get into these expanded um, um, levels of consciousness, which help you to activate any areas, so any pre-traumas or difficulties or the exact same healing you can have with the substance, you can actually get through breathwork. And if you don't have that kind of stuff, it can just give you the most blissful experience and, and really flush your system of all those unwanted negative feelings and things that are lurking within. And it's like literally like, you know, like you've washed the dishes, it does that kind of internal work. And so I think um, in, that it's not all about the substances and breath work for me is a safe place to start. And it's an extraordinary way to go. And if anyone's interested in this kind of work, start there. And, mm. and, then, and then you can always go there. And then, which brings you up on another thing, we, you were talking about companies and, and just mm. the, what you're seeing now is this huge boom of companies that are, are they're literally mushrooming all over. And, and what you're seeing, what they call the shroom boom, and it's not just about shrooms because it's, clinics, it's retreats, it's research companies, it's, it's all sorts of stuff. But what you're seeing um, in a world which is all about substance is it's becoming harder and harder to distinguish which companies actually have substance and which are just prospectors just trying to make a buck. That makes a lot of sense. But that is something that I wanted to talk to you about. And I like your, what you're saying about the breath work, obviously, but you've got to be careful when you say it on these sorts of platforms or you're going to get our own breath regulated, right? Because nobody, nobody, wants, nobody wants to hand over that sort of power to the people, literally. I mean, this is what government's generally been about in the past. But that's an aside. We don't have to go down, go down that's, that sort of more cynical, skeptical road. 
rather, I think it is worth talking about the commercial aspect of this because we've hinted at it, we've sort of hinted around it, we haven't made it explicit, the sort of size of the market opportunity here. And we can come at that from a few different angles too. I mean, the research that I've been doing, it shows that this industry where it has been becoming more, more legalized is growing at around sort of 17, 18% a year, projected to be something like sort of $6.5 billion market within the next sort of five, five or so years. That's quite large. And if in comparison to the sort of the growth that's happened with the cannabis market, it's also quite interesting to contrast that because that's obviously been legalized a little bit ahead of this curve, probably around about five years ago, that whole deregulation period started. And that's already sort of 10 times the size of that market. So what are your thoughts there in terms of the sort of global market potential here? Is this going to overtake the size of the cannabis economy, which is, depending on who you ask, anywhere from sort of like 50 billion USD to over 100 billion, you know, so it's crazy numbers they're throwing out there. Is this a bigger opportunity or is it comparable? I know that's a bit more of a sort of a meat and potatoes question, but I think it's, it's, it's interesting to contextualize because we've always got to follow the money when we talk about anything to do with regulation and deregulation. Yeah, so if, if you follow the money, first of all, when, when you look at cannabis, it was like cannabis went from recreation into healing and psychedelics started as healing. They went into the labs, then went recreational, and now we're heading back to healing. And so I think even in your own estimates, you could add a zero to the year-on-year -year growth that's, that's been happening. So when I looked at a lot of the shroom stocks or the psychedelic stocks for the last year, the mm. return was, was um, uh, exponential. It was off the charts. So um, there's been a huge rush towards it. And the industry is so nascent at the moment because it, it hasn't even got to legalization yet. So you're only seeing, you know, a few doors open, but it, it's not into the market yet. So, um, you know, many people are taking huge bets on the future because as each of these substances come online, there are so many opportunities that come with it. And that's why it is, it is so exciting. Like this, um, I mean, obviously, you know, you, you have those in the industry that, that are either drinking the Kool-Aid or, or um, nibbling the mushrooms, but they, they, they get the sense that this, this is a comparable opportunity like the internet was for mental health. And so when you look at it, it is uh, the potential. So, so cannabis and psychedelics will coexist, but psychedelics has such a huge potential just given the size and the, the, um, of the market that, that it can help solve. So I, I would say definitely. And then I think it would be interesting just to even look at the value chain. So what, where are these opportunities? And, and even think in South Africa. I went in um, last weekend, I went, uh, I went to Hogsback and I, I, flew, um, I flew to East London. And as you're landing in East London, you see all these greenhouses. You actually, the person next to me um, pointed out to say, you see all of those, that's cannabis. And it's interesting to see how these, these kind of sites that it's happening all around our country at the moment. And, and if you think about um, in this country, how much agriculture opportunities there are, you're looking at there, there will be global, almost insatiable demand for high quality material for research and for therapy. And so, there's a huge opportunity there. Think about what's our other, what's the other sector of our community or of our economy that is hurting at the moment, but hopefully will recover, is tourism. So now if South Africa becomes a healing destination, a global healing destination, so not only will you come on safari and, and um, you know, remember medical tourism, where you come have a nose job and, yeah, and have a facelift, that then go see the rhinos and um, hopefully find a leopard. Then think about it now where you could come to South Africa um, to the birthplace of humanity, the cradle of humankind. You can come home while you come home internally to do that beautiful healing. It's a great story and it's possible. And as soon as these um, uh, the substances come online and legal, it now becomes um, a whole other industry. And then there's 
there's training, there's distribution, there's retail products, there's, um, there's all sorts of opportunities as you look at it. There's technology, there's um, uh, even along therapy, there's, there's interesting opportunities in clinics and retreat centers. So there's, um, yeah, I, I'm just so excited about it because I, I, see, I see so much opportunity and, um, and obviously my eyes are open to say there, there are risks, but certainly for me, there's way more opportunity. Yeah, from my perspective, looking at it from a sort of trend and economic perspective, it seems like it could be a much deeper market and a bigger marketing opportunity than the cannabis industry, just because we're not talking yeah. about one thing now. We're actually talking about a whole category. It's a whole industry that comes around it. and also the, the deeper ties to the, the more expensive and the, the bigger messy problems that the medical and mental health industry is trying to fix at the moment. I definitely think there's opportunities there. But focusing on opportunity again, and you were doing some marvelous sort of like free marketing for tourism essay hopefully they're paying you for for all your work you're doing over there that what are the, the the chances or what are the odds from your perspective of south africa perhaps sort of shooting themselves in the foot over here because we're already quite slow off the mark in terms of the cannabis opportunity we let other nations like canada and the u.s really shoot very far ahead of us even though we've got sort of perfect growing conditions here we made it very very difficult to legalize those products in our country so we lost a lot of time a lot of opportunity there what are the likelihood of those same sort of mistakes playing out this time? Who are our competition? And are we likely to be fast moving enough to actually get some of those benefits, particularly in the sort of job sphere, which is what obviously should be on everyone's mind when looking at the future of South Africa. We have to get growth going. We have to improve employment. Are we gonna miss the ship? What do you, what do you think? Um. If, if we're looking based on past performance, uh, I'm, I'm a bit pessimistic because like in many ways, um, I, I would say our government fell asleep at the wheel. And um, I think we, we missed the first wave of cannabis and, um, and that, that was the start of it. Absolutely. Just what you see, you look at the poorest nation of the world, which happens to be within our country, Lesotho, it's just taken advantage of many of these opportunities and there, there's huge growing operations there for exports and um, right now there, there's even um, the first few licenses have been granted to grow psilocybin or magic mushrooms for export um, to all over the world so it's already happening in Lesotho of all places and so we have the perfect conditions we have highly trained medical professionals we have we have all the, the conditions and context is perfect. And um, the medical world is also conservative. And I, I think most of them are going to take a wait and see approach. Like we don't know enough. There's not enough research. Um, it's a slow moving um, system. So they're going to watch what's happening overseas before it's really available here. And um, to note just locally, and I, I think there's just a little sidebar is there are some traditional psychedelics. So if you look at something like Iboga, which comes from Gabon, um, and, it's, and it's from the bark of a tree, which is a species I can't remember, admittedly, but um, it was brought and it has found its way down to, to South Africa, and it's completely legal, and you can go to a clinic and have Iboga. And it's a very intense ceremony, and it's, and it's known to be one of the best cures for addiction. And it was actually found out by someone who was addicted to, I think, crack, um, that was actually looking for a fix and got fixed in the process. And, and so the pharmaceutical companies have also jumped on that. And now you can find Arbogaine, which is the, the, the chemical version. And so, um, so if you look at Iboga, you can get that. Uh, or Ibogaine, you can get from your psychiatrist, you can get ketamine from your psychiatrist now. So these things are already in South Africa and it's happening, but you have to go uh, the medical route or Iboga through the traditional healer ceremony route. Um, another interesting thing um, which could be of interest is as these things come online, what about sustainability and ethics? You know, do, do we have an abundance of these natural substances to, to put out into the world. So if you look at, at, at the, 
at the proposed California legislation, they, they left out San Pedro and Peyote because it comes from cactus. And the request from the traditional people in the area was, was we don't have enough to service, that like there's not enough stock. And so okay. if, it if it became legal, then, then it's going to be you know, up for extinction more than it's going to heal the world. And so in many ways, there's also ethical questions, not just in who's distributing it, but are we going to be um, using the plants in a sustainable way? That's a very interesting point, although I'm not convinced that that's what's holding back uh, the South African government, per se, from, from moving I know. No, those conversations are no, no, <laughs> at, at a different point in, in that yeah. whole, <laughs> whole Yeah, I, th I, I think if we, if we came back to the South African government, I think, I think we all know the answer. Even if, if they had good intentions, the execution is just so delayed, if, if non-existent that that's probably going to hold us back. So if it doesn't come by the medical route, it's, it's going to be a very slow process. Although people on the inside say, if, if the FDA in the US approves things, then, then it won't take long for things to be approved with us. Yes, yeah, so just sort of looking for those, mar those global market leaders to point the way to ease things up because Traditionally, South Africa has actually been quite an early adopter of new legislation. I mean, we're always the first to tie ourselves in a knot with the next trending piece of red tape. It would be nice if we could sort of be early adopters and cutting those, those same ties when other people start doing so too. But that's just yeah. a more general observation of, our, of the state of our nation's mindset as, as it seems to be. Um, perhaps for a slightly different question, because we're sort of drawing to the close now, what are your thoughts around South Africa's culture in terms of being conservative or progressive around these things? Like I've worked in a few different industries and it seems to be that when you start talking about things like drugs, whatever you want to call them, and things like morality, South Africa is still quite a conservative culture, although we have a very progressive constitution societally, we are quite conservative in the way that we act with each other. What are the cultural and societal barriers need to be overcome to sort of destigmatize these things? Or, have, or do you disagree with my observation there? I make this observation based on the fact that I ran a lingerie store and you'd be, I was horrified at how conservative South Africans were, like not interested in anything other than complete meat and potatoes underwear. So that was, that was a learning curve for me. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Brian, as you know, I don't agree with everything that you say, but in this point, I do. And I think if you go go back to the schooling systems, like let's start there. Mm. And I had, a, I had a conversation with my 15-year-old daughter, and I said to her, you know, probably soon you're going to get an ex-drug addict who's, who's recovered or in recovery. I'll come talk to you and give you a whole list of substances that you shouldn't take because drugs are bad. I said, like, for you at this point in time, it's absolutely right and you should listen with both your ears. But I'm telling you, by the time you reach varsity or in five years time, half those substances on the list are gonna be used in therapy to make you better. And so the, we first gotta start with this, uh, the destigmatization because we've been brought up and fed. It is so hardwired in us that this is a bad thing. This is mm. harmful and only leads to trouble. And if you, if you go back into, um, potentially into African culture and ritual usage, you know, you just have to go into the community to see it. it's still happening and it's, it is a way to connect with the ancestors and it's a good thing. In our other religions and belief systems, it's shunned. And it's, I think it's, it's what, what, the, what these substances will help is realize that we're all one we're all interconnected and not just people, but the world. And we should have more love, more empathy, more compassion. Um, we should have more of the feminine energy in the world, give up all this control and build a new world. So basically break down a lot of the old structures that are keeping us conservative and actually to build a new sustainable world that is actually kinder, more loving, um, sustainable and I'm starting to really sound like a hippie, but I actually think it's possible. 
There's some middle ground there too. I actually found out over the last couple of weeks that the early days of Christianity, which is supposed to be like the most conservative, most sort of, sort of moralistic of the religions that would be the natural enemy of these sorts of things, actually used psychedelics in order to propagate the, the spread of Christianity across Europe in the early days of the, of the Middle Ages. So they actually used to mix psychedelics in with the, with the blood of Christ. Yes, and gave people an intense spiritual experience, which was then able to, you know, convert people a bit easier, which is which is really quite strange, especially for conservative Christians that might be listening to this, how, how sort of parallel a lot of our religious histories really are. We can yeah. take that all the way up to date with uh, what's gone on in some of our more exciting South African Christian churches with some of the substances contemporary, you know, pastors have disseminated to their congregants in order to heighten the experiences within the doors of the church. Yeah, that's a different way to pass around a hat. And I, I, I always, I always um, try to stay, like steer clear of religion because I, I don't see myself as an expert, but, but certainly the wine they were drinking in those days is very different to the wine coming from Stellenbosch. And, yeah. um, and it's um, almost think that we've missed out in, in what was in that, but the, um, I, I think in all traditions of the past, there was use um, whether, it, whether it was stuff like fragrances and oils and psychedelics and all of it. Yeah, yeah. all part of, all of that. experience. It, it was all part of it. And as, as things have come in the last century or two centuries, things just got more and more and more conservative. And I definitely think that it's that um, with expanded consciousness, we will realize um, that we're all one. And my warning, so maybe let's, let's end off with this warning. If you're an, a neutral or you're an atheist and you do this kind of work, beware. You might actually realize we're all connected and there may be something else out there. You could say the same thing for if you are a stone cold capitalist, right? You might, you might become more generous. So 100%. use at your own peril. It comes with the whole <laughs> for your own good. But you're right. That's a great point to end this. Um, where can people get hold of you if they want to find out more? I mean, we'll pop the details in the description on the various platforms. But if you've got any closing words before we shut this down, tell us where to find yes. you. So you can find me either on LinkedIn, just search Ronen Ayres, or you could find me on Twitter at Ronen Ayres. I'll have my personal site up soon. So I won't, I won't publish it now. But uh, see you soon. Connect with me online, ronen at studentvillage.co.za and um, happy to connect with anyone. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Brian.